You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Sylvia Fleming. The island of Ireland is divided into two separate jurisdictions. The Republic of Ireland, which is the southern two-thirds or so of the island, in addition to the most northwestern county of Donegal, and Northern Ireland, which is made up of six counties from the province of Ulster. The town of Oma is the county town of Tyrone. It's about as close as you can get to being in the centre of the province. It's classified as a large town, but has a relatively small population of less than 20,000, although this number is up from about 15,000 in the mid-90s. It's predominantly a Catholic area, with about 75% of the population reporting itself to be of that background. And interestingly, one-third or so of the population each identified itself as Irish, Northern Irish, and British, respectively. It's a typical regional town, and at its heart, the rivers Drumra and Camoan joined to form the Struel. Like many towns on the island, a monastery was founded in the 8th century, and the town grew around the religious site. It's a quiet but busy market town with a close community. But 1998 would be a tragic year for the people of Oma. That year, the town would be figuratively and literally ripped apart by two horrendous events. Sylvia Fleming was born on the 11th of October 1980 and was the youngest of three sisters. Her older sisters were raised initially by their father, but eventually it became apparent that he couldn't really look after them, and so they were all placed in voluntary care. The three were kept together and developed a very close relationship. Josephine, or Josie the eldest, became a mother figure for her younger sisters. She reported that the three had endured some physical abuse during their early years in the fostering service, and because of this, they relied heavily on one another to get through it. They meant the world to one another, she said. It's likely that this abuse in Sylvia's childhood impacted her as she grew, particularly when it came to developing healthy relationships. She was vulnerable and would do nearly anything for approval and love. Despite the difficult circumstances of her upbringing, Sylvia worked hard at school. She was an artist and a popular kid. In 1997, she left school at the age of 16 and went on to study in a tech for hairdressing. After finishing this course, she went on to get her first job in a nursing home. Soon after this, Josie discovered that she was pregnant. Sylvia was so excited to hear the news. She couldn't wait to be an auntie. Josie moved into her own place and invited the other two girls to move in with her. It finally felt like the sisters were now set up together and that life was going well. In December of 1997, Sylvia met 26-year-old Stephen Scott at a party in his flat. 
He was a part-time firefighter and bodybuilder. She was 17 at the time. She fell for him quickly. She told her sisters all about this guy she had met, and she seemed genuinely happy. The two started a relationship. Stephen Scott had recently moved to Oma from the Newry area. He was also known by the nickname Bulldog for his short but stocky build. He cultivated a macho image and wanted desperately to be respected. He tried his hardest to appear popular and upright. Josie, the eldest of the Fleming girls, was skeptical of him. She said he seemed like he needed attention, and she thought he was vain. But to Sylvia, he seemed like a safe bet, a well-respected firefighter, a guy with a good job, who was liked and respected. This was a guy who could take care of her. And he was charming. And manipulative. Sylvia soon became devoted to him and idolized him. Stephen often had local teenagers over to his flat. He tended to hang around with people, kids really, much younger than him. He could impress these young people, given his reputation as a bodybuilder and firefighter. It was clear that he desired power, and he got it from the teens. He was at least ten years older than them. And why else would he surround himself with a group of people who were so much younger than him? Sylvia started spending loads of time with Stephen, and less and less with her sisters. He was controlling. Stephen would try and put himself between her and her sisters. He was socially isolating Sylvia, but she thought she loved him, and she didn't see it. Stephen was also totally obsessed with serial killers. He was particularly fond of the likes of Charles Manson and Ted Bundy but he wasn't some sort of proto-murderino. He looked up to these guys, and he wanted to be like them. He admired these smart, charismatic leaders who were often able to exert absolute control. In February of 1998, Sylvia moved into the flat with Stephen. Around this time, her friends started to notice that he was also becoming abusive towards her. Stephen took to demeaning Sylvia in public, and chipping away at her self-confidence. He had no qualms about belittling her in front of other people. But of course, Stephen was still able to project the image of the charming, respectable young man to those around him, to those it was important for him to be well thought of. Soon, his control over Sylvia was all-encompassing. He treated her like a plaything, and this very quickly moved into their sex life as well. Unsurprisingly, he was into sadistic, controlling sex. Sylvia reportedly told a friend that once Stephen had tried to put a pillow over her face during sex, and that she had told him not to. But eventually, she complied with what he wanted. Sylvia thought that he loved her. She was frightened of him, but she wanted to please him. Their sex life soon often featured Stephen's need for control, through bondage and demeaning acts. He seemed to have gotten pleasure from her suffering and pain. Three months after the two started their relationship, though, Sylvia discovered that she was pregnant. Stephen did not want this. He absolutely didn't want a baby, nor did he want a long-term relationship with Sylvia. She had just suited what he wanted for that particular time, 
So he told Sylvia that the baby wasn't his, that Sylvia must have been cheating on him with somebody else, and that she should get rid of it. Stephen broke up with her, and she moved out of the flat. Sylvia then moved in with a friend, but continued to go over to Stephen's and sleep with him. She wanted to get him back, and she would do just about anything to try and get her life back together, both for herself and for her unborn child. And so Sylvia found herself going along with anything Stephen wanted to try and win him over. He, of course, was very happy to take advantage of that. On Friday the 3rd of April, 1998, Sylvia received her first paycheck from her job at the nursing home. She decided to go out and celebrate. She had a few drinks with friends and then left her friend Katrina McMullen's house at around quarter past eleven that night. She decided to go to Stephen Scott's house, and Sylvia was never seen again. Stephen was in the flat that night with two teenagers, a boy and a girl, both aged fourteen, and they were all drinking. He told them that he planned on killing Sylvia, but the two kids didn't think that he was serious. I mean, who would? What person in their right mind says something like that if they really mean it? And even if they had taken him seriously, what were two 14-year-old kids to do about the revelation? Sylvia had no idea that he'd been plotting her murder. Instead, she was full of hope that maybe he might take her back and they could restart their lives together. When she arrived, they had a drink, but eventually he took her into the bedroom. There, he gave her some sleeping tablets. Now drowsy, he tied her up and bound her arms and legs to the bed. He blindfolded her. Then he duct-taped her eyes, her nose, her mouth. Then Stephen injected her with insulin which lowered her blood sugar. Giving insulin like this can induce a form of coma if taken when not medically necessary. Sylvia, at this point, became almost like a zombie. Stephen was totally in control, and he could get her to do anything he wanted. Just like one of his so-called heroes, Jeffrey Dahmer. It's unclear what happened next. For some reason, he brought the two teenagers into the bedroom to show them Sylvia's body. Again, this seemed to show the kind of kick Stephen sought from taking advantage of the power dynamic between him and the young kids. He felt powerful over young people, and he knew that they couldn't and wouldn't tell anybody about what they had seen and what he had done. He probably got a further thrill from that. He went on to tell the boy and the girl that they were now implicated in Sylvia's death. He needed to get rid of the body, and he had two built-in helpers right there waiting for him, who were too terrified to do anything else. They wrapped Sylvia's body in a blanket and put her up into the loft of the flat. And then, the two teens and Stephen went swimming. When they returned to the flat, he got himself a hacksaw and various knives. He put Sylvia into the bath and cut her body into eight pieces. Pathologist Professor Jack Crane said of the dismemberment that it appeared that Stephen Scott knew what he was doing. He had very precisely, carefully, and accurately cut the body into pieces. It had been done with care and attention, and there must have been a huge amount of blood present at the scene. Scott then had to clean up this massive mess. 
he took the money that Sylvia had been paid, the £25, to go get bin bags and cleaning products to try and tackle the mess that he had left in the bathroom. That was the paycheck that she had been out that night celebrating. On the Saturday, Josie and Kathleen were worried when Sylvia hadn't turned back up at her friend's where she was staying. They thought she'd gone to visit her ex-boyfriend, so Kathleen phoned Stephen, but he didn't answer. She kept trying him, though, and eventually got through to him. He told her that he hadn't seen her sister in days. The day after the phone call, Sunday the 5th of April, the girls walked out to Stephen's flat, still looking for Sylvia and suspicious that he had somehow hurt their sister. They called at the door, and he answered and let them in. Stephen sat there talking to him on his bed, where he had just murdered their sister. Josie said that she'd glanced up at the hatch in the attic, and when Stephen saw this, he immediately ushered them back out into the living room. He'd gone from calm and unconcerned to agitated. He started repeating himself. Josie later said that she had felt in that moment that he had hurt Sylvia, and that he had her up in the attic. But she never thought that he might have killed her and dismembered her body. In the end, he shut the women down and ushered them back out of the flat. The girls noticed backpacks and rucksacks, packed full and sitting on the floor as he assertively guided them out towards the door. They had no inkling at that point that Sylvia's body was packed up in those bags. Kathleen realised then that it was time to report her sister missing to the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary as it was then. Stephen helpfully offered that he'd take part in the search too, but he and the 14-year-old boy that he had roped in had first to go about disposing the pieces of Sylvia's body. The two brought the pieces to a development of new houses that was being built, which Stephen had picked out just for this purpose, called Mullock Moor. He knew that his apartment would be the first place that the authorities would look, and so he had to get rid of the evidence quickly, before the police began their inquiries. He carried the bags with Sylvia's body in them across the town of Oma, with the help of his 14-year-old accomplice. Stephen refused to carry the head and torso himself, because the bodybuilder said that he had a bad back he made the 14-year-old do it for him. Meanwhile, the search by friends and family began for any sign of Sylvia. They called at houses and checked in lanes and alleyways. Scott joined in on the search and pretended to be helping out. At one point, he passed the estate being built in Glenside on the circular road in Oma, and he turned to Sylvia's sister and said, quote, Don't go up there. You never know what you might find. He was teasing them with information he knew they wouldn't realise was important. He couldn't help himself, and seemed to get a further kick out of dangling this information in front of them. Later, Stephen Scott told a 20-year-old friend about the murder, Paul John Rigby. Scott had bragged to him about how he had killed Sylvia, and then somehow got his help to get rid of the rest of her body. Apparently there were some bits left over. Despite what Stephen had thought, it wasn't until two weeks after Sylvia had initially been reported missing to the RUC that Stephen's flat was searched, and he gave an official statement to the police, by which time he had gotten rid of Sylvia and her things and had scrubbed his bathroom down 
so no evidence was left to be observed by the naked eye of the police who did the searching. The police said that when his flat was searched, there was absolutely no evidence of wrongdoing, not even in the attic, which they had in fact checked into. The police told her distraught sisters that perhaps Sylvia had run away after all. But they continued the search nevertheless, at least for another seven weeks. On the 30th of May 1998, Paul John Rigby was arrested in Oma. He had been spotted waving an air rifle around at the local park. Apparently, he wanted to be lifted. His conscience had gotten to him. Rigby told the police everything about what Stephen had said he'd done and what he himself had taken part in. He took the police to where Stephen had said Sylvia's body was. They searched the building site and went into the house that the 21-year-old had pointed out. When the police entered the half-built house, the smell was awful. They lifted the floorboards and saw that the damp course had been cut and that the soil had been moved. Then they saw a limb sticking out of the dirt, and they found the rest of the remains. Any tiny hope that Sylvia's family might see her again now was lost. They were informed that the police had found quote-unquote part of a body. They thought, a part? Josie said that all she could think of at the time was, what the hell has happened to my sister? Sylvia was identified by dental records. The remains were recovered from under the house. Eight pieces of Sylvia's corpse were found there. Her family was devastated. Stephen Scott and the two teens were quickly arrested. The news broke that Sylvia's body had finally been found, but that she had been found dismembered. The whole community of Oma was shocked. The murder sparked riots in the town. The Good Friday Agreement had just been signed, and feelings in the North were running high at the time. The community was enraged that such a thing could happen there, and those who had been involved saw their homes targeted by angry mobs. Both the parish priest and the Fleming family intervened and asked for this to stop. Stephen Scott had thought that he was important and a respected member of his community, but the violent outbreaks belied that. He wasn't from there and the community lashed out at who they saw as an interloper who had committed an atrocity in their midst. In his initial interviews with the police, Stephen continued to deny his involvement in Sylvia's murder and lied to the police. But by his third interview, he admitted to giving her the sleeping pills and to tying her up. And then he admitted to taping her face and injecting her with insulin. But he placed the blame for Sylvia's death on his 14-year-old male accomplice. Stephen told the police that this kid was the one who put the rope around Sylvia's neck and strangled her, while Stephen and the other teenage girl were in the room. He did end up admitting to dismembering Sylvia's body and hiding it under the house. When he was asked why no one had called the police when they realized that Sylvia had died, he said that the three of them had panicked when she stopped breathing. But his actions after the fact put lie to that idea. He had shown no panic in his behaviour after Sylvia's death. He'd gone swimming, and only after that did he then return to his flat to go about dismembering her. The investigation searched Stephen's flat once more, and blood and DNA was found in the pipes of the bathroom. The police were able to place where the dismemberment of Sylvia's body had occurred, 
and they said it must have looked like something out of a horror movie before he cleaned it up. Stephen Scott was charged with murder, and the 21-year-old and the two 14-year-olds were charged with perverting the course of justice and conspiracy to prevent the lawful burial of a body. The trial was set for March 2000. Sylvia's body was released back to her family after two autopsies to try and ascertain her cause and manner of death, and she was laid to rest on the 5th of June 1998. More than a thousand mourners attended her funeral mass in the Church of Christ the King at Strathroy, An honour guard made up of pupils from our old school, St. Bridget's High School, stood at the doors of the church, and special arrangements were made for those girls who were attending to allow them to sit GCSE exams around the funeral. The priest who conducted the Mass said how the community had been deeply affected by Sylvia's death, but warned against the violence that had erupted in the wake of her murder. He described her as caring and considerate, and said that mourners would never be able to fully understand why she had died the way she had. Her full family was in attendance, her two sisters, her mother and her father, and her father helped to carry her coffin when she was laid into the grave in a nearby cemetery. The trial was obviously national news. It was held in Ballymena Courthouse. Graphic details of the murder were given during the trial. There were people in the courtroom, reporters, members of the public, the jury, who were crying while listening to the evidence. Sylvia's family were seated directly behind the man accused of murdering their sister. Stephen Scott did not give evidence and appeared emotionless during the trial. He pled not guilty and stuck to his story, blaming the killing on the schoolboy. Scott said that the whole thing was a sex game gone wrong. The pathologist, however, told the court that death was due to asphyxiation caused by the taping of Sylvia's face, or possibly by strangulation, with or without a ligature, which interfered with her breathing. There were no signs of strangulation per se, but given the condition of the body, with the level of decomposition and the dismemberment, it was impossible to rule it out as a manner of death. Stephen Scott had spoken to a number of people about Sylvia while she was missing for those seven weeks, but each time he denied that he had any knowledge whatsoever of her whereabouts. Evidence was also given of the statements that he had made to the police, both before and after his arrest. In his witness statement, given to a Detective Constable Coyle on the 20th of April, He told them that he had gone out with Sylvia, but only for about six weeks, and that they had split up at the end of January. He said he'd last seen her at the end of March, when she told him that she was pregnant. He also told them that she'd called him on the phone the evening of the 3rd, the night she disappeared, and had made plans with him that she would come over to his flat the next day, but that she'd never showed up. Stephen also took the time to name another guy to the RUC, saying that he was in fact the love of Sylvia's life, and that they'd been sleeping together. But then, after his arrest, he'd been interviewed again a number of times, each taped with transcripts prepared. In his first interview this time round, Stephen told the police that he'd actually seen Sylvia the morning of her disappearance, at about 7am, when she'd come to his flat. Sylvia stayed for about an hour, and Stephen told them that the two had had sex but he also told the police that this had happened the next day, the Saturday. At one point, he told the police that Sylvia had called around on that Friday night, 
but the teenage girl who was present in his flat had answered the door, and he hadn't seen Sylvia himself. By the third interview, he finally told the police that Sylvia had in fact called around to his flat on the Friday evening, and that they had had sex. Scott told them that he'd blindfolded her. He said that as a joke, he'd tied her up, bound her arms and legs to the bedpost, and then looped the rope around her neck. After a time, between 30 minutes to an hour, he decided to inject her with some insulin, and then called the two kids in to share in the joke. The male teenager yanked one of the cords. Again, Scott insisted as a joke, but the kid soon told Stephen that he didn't think Sylvia was breathing. In another version of the story told during the third police interview, Stephen said that he had gone out to the toilet, and when he came back, the young man had told him that he'd pulled on the rope and Sylvia wasn't breathing anymore. Either way, that's when Stephen rolled up Sylvia's body in a blanket and put her into the attic, before going swimming with the younger people. No one called for the police, or for an ambulance. Stephen, despite his training as a firefighter, made no attempts at resuscitation either. Stephen also told the police the two teenagers had told him that they would have to go about getting rid of the body. The young male said that they should cut her up, and the girl went to the shop for the black bags. And so that's how Stephen had come to cut up Sylvia's body in the bathtub. In that statement, he told the police that he didn't remember whether he had told the teenagers that he had planned on killing Sylvia that night. If he did, Stephen said that it would have been as a joke, and maybe the kids had picked him up wrong. When he told Paul John Rigby about Sylvia's death, he told the police that he had said that the kids had done it. But he admitted also telling Rigby that Stephen had injected her with insulin. Rigby had been in England at the time of Sylvia's death, but came over to Northern Ireland, at which point Scott had him help to dispose of more of Sylvia's remains. Another pathologist, Dr. Ian West, gave evidence that the activities described were consistent with sadosexual activity, and that the events, as described by Scott in his statements, performed in that sequence were, at the bare minimum, acts of extreme recklessness. In relation to the administration of insulin, it would be easily foreseeable that serious harm or death could be the resulting outcome, especially if Scott had left Sylvia unattended, as he had indicated at one point in the statements. At the end of the trial, the prosecution case was summed up by the presiding judge. He said, quote, What, then, are the circumstances that the prosecution rely on? Firstly, the deceased died in the accused bedroom. You may feel there is no doubt whatever about that. Secondly, the accused, on his own admission, tied her up in that bedroom and left her tied up, again, on his own admission, for something like an hour. Thirdly, and it's a matter for you to decide whether this is established by the evidence, he encircled her neck with a rope, without the prosecution say, and it's a matter for you to decide whether they're right, without any coherently expressed reason for doing it. Fourthly, he claimed to have interrupted his sexual session with the deceased to go to the lavatory, and then he doesn't release her, he didn't remove the tapes from her face or allow her hands to be free of the rope, and then he says that he impliedly invited, or at least permitted, the other young people to go into the room. Fifthly, he left the deceased trussed up while, according to him, he was engaged in a conversation with the female teenager in the bedroom. 
and while the male teenager was at the head of the bed pulling on the rope. And you may consider whether that is a likely scenario, whether that's a circumstance that you accept as being reasonably possible. The Crown also say that it is relevant as an important piece of circumstantial evidence that on the accused account, he made but the most ineffectual attempt to resuscitate the girl, and of course the riposte to that by the defence is that he was seized by an understandable and entirely natural panic, and that his actions failed to be evaluated against the panic that must have seized all three people in the flat when they realised that she died. End quote. Later in the judge's summing up, he noted the degradation and humiliation caused to Sylvia Fleming in the manner of her death, and said that she had been, quote, callously discarded. On the 13th of March 2000, Stephen Scott was found guilty of the murder of Sylvia Fleming, and dismembering her body and concealing it. Two of the others in the case had pled guilty, and so the 14-year-old boy was convicted of dismembering and concealing the body, and John Paul Rigby, the 21-year-old accomplice, was convicted of concealing Sylvia's body. The 14-year-old girl who was present at the time of Sylvia's death was cleared of all charges. On the 5th of April, Stephen Scott was sentenced to life imprisonment, with a minimum of 19 years to be served. The two male accomplices were both sentenced to two and a half years for their parts in concealing the murder. Stephen Scott had remained emotionless when both the verdict and the sentence were read out in court. He sought to bring an appeal, but leave was refused by the Court of Appeal on the 21st of August, 2000. Its judges noted that Scott had tried to place the blame for Sylvia's death on his co-accused, that he'd lied consistently to the police, and he'd tied Sylvia up, quote, for a joke, and was unable to explain his actions on that night with any satisfaction. This, in conjunction with many of his own statements, meant that they were in no doubt that the jury were entitled to think that he at least intended to cause grievous bodily harm, and that it was open to the jury to find him guilty on the basis of the arguments presented by the prosecution in court. Scott went on to further appeal against the severity of his sentencing. His team in this instance argued that the crime he had been found guilty of clearly attracted the lower starting point of sentences for murder in the UK, 12 years. His Queen's counsel said that the prosecution had run the case also on the alternate basis, that his client intended the victim to be either killed or to inflict grievous bodily harm on the victim, and that therefore this was a less serious case of murder. The so-called concealment of the body was admitted to be an aggravating factor in the case, but the maximum sentence for perversion of the course of justice by dismemberment was five years. So even if he had gotten the maximum of the lower tariff, plus five years, and without taking into account the remission that he would have been entitled to, that adds up to 17 years, two more than the minimum he was sentenced to. Submissions were made by Sylvia's family for the judge to consider in this action. Her father told the court of how devastated he had been since Sylvia's death, and said that he would never come to terms with the manner of his daughter's murder. He found special occasions, like Christmas, particularly difficult. Josie submitted a statement also saying that Scott was totally unrepentant for her sister's murder, 
and that she felt physically and mentally wrecked by the thought of her sister's suffering. Kathleen emphasized Sylvia's pregnancy and Scott's mutilation and disposal of her body. They all told the court how difficult they would find it should Mr. Scott be released. The court in this case did not accept Scott's arguments. Lord Chief Justice Kerr said that Sylvia had been very much under the influence of the applicant and had submitted to being tied up, etc. Add to this the non-consensual injection of insulin, and the court found that she was extremely vulnerable, and therefore this attracted the higher starting point of a 15 to 16 years minimum sentence for murder. Scott had lost his case. But in the beginning of July 2017, Scott was spotted at his mother's home in Warren Point, near Nureen County Down. It was understood that he was taking part in the pre-release program from prison, and that he would soon be eligible for full release. He was quickly forced to move when it was revealed that he had returned. Later in 2017, he was housed by the Northern Ireland Probation Service in Belfast, and he's been spotted out in Belfast, where he frequents a particular KFC branch, it would seem. When he was first reported to be on temporary release, Sylvia's family urged the parole commissioners to ban him from returning to Oma or from visiting Sylvia's grave. He had served just 14 years of his sentence. Josephine spoke on behalf of the family and said, quote, Words cannot describe how we feel at the moment, after being over one hurdle after another. It's hard to believe that 16 years on, we're now talking about his release. We never thought that we would be talking about him getting out after what he took from us. The scary thing is knowing that he's going to be out and about somewhere, even though we've been assured that he'll be closely monitored. End quote. A public meeting was called in response to his pre-release in July 2017 to take place in Nuri at the end of that month. Victim support told the family that Scott had written to them, assuring them and Sylvia's family that he would not go to Oma and apologising for what he had done. It's reported that he is to be discharged completely from the Northern Ireland Prison Service by Christmas this year, 2018. Paul John Rigby was jailed in 2000 along with Scott and was released a mere eight and a half months later. The male, who was 14 years old at the time of Sylvia's murder, was released after spending only five days behind bars. In the wake of Sylvia's death, particularly after the discovery of her remains, the community of Oma was outraged. As I said earlier, there were riots in the community. It was a significant violent outburst. Of course, not something that Northern Ireland is unfamiliar with, but in this context, it was highly unusual for such a response to an event that was not in any way political in nature. The trouble started on Tuesday the 2nd of June. Stones and bricks, and then petrol bombs, were thrown as RUC officers escorted the families of those implicated in the crime from their homes, which were the targets of violence, to safety. One of the houses was set alight and was very badly damaged by the blaze. A police officer was struck with a firebomb, although he was not seriously injured in the incident. The violence continued until half two on Wednesday morning, and then started up again the following evening, Wednesday the 3rd. Another two houses had petrol bombs thrown at them, and at a third house, the oil tank containing fuel to heat the house was set alight. Eventually, the police were kitted out with full riot gear to contain the situation, and they were involved in a conflict with a gang of local youths. 
A stock of petrol bombs was recovered, and one man was convicted of riotous behaviour and was fined £100. Unfortunately, the murder of Sylvia Fleming was not the only event that would affect the small town of Oma that year. Less than six weeks after the arrest of four people in relation to Sylvia's murder and the riots that followed, the town would suffer another tragedy and be literally torn apart. The Good Friday Agreement had been signed in April of that year, an agreement not only between the various political parties of Northern Ireland, but also between Britain, the Republic, and Northern Ireland. It was the result of over ten years of attempts to find a political solution to the paramilitary violence that had plagued Northern Ireland since the 1970s, and had spilled into the Republic and Britain alike. But the very fact of the agreement caused tensions too, and of course not all members of the paramilitaries that were linked with the political parties were happy with the terms of the agreement or the decommissioning of weapons, that the process would begin. The 15th of August, 1998, was a Saturday. It was a cloudy day, a normal day, and people were going about their business in the centre of town. A group of young Spanish students were visiting for the day. People were out shopping on the main streets and ducking in and out of shops. At about 2pm, a red Vauxhall Cavalier parked on Market Street. The two men inside had been looking to park near the courthouse, but there was no spot available, so they drove down Market Street and left the car there. The car had fake plates on it. It had been stolen from Carrickmacross, County Monaghan, the previous Thursday. About half an hour later, calls started to be made. Three in total. One to the Samaritans and two to UTV, the local news station. They were told that there was a bomb in Oma, near the courthouse. There was only 30 minutes until detonation. The RUC swung into action and cleared High Street near the courthouse of people as they began searching out the bomb. The pedestrians were guided down to the safety of Market Street. At ten past three, as the police searched and cordoned off the area around the courthouse, 500 metres away, a 500-pound bomb exploded on Market Street. A huge fireball destroyed buildings and the people who had been ushered there supposedly to safety. 29 people, including a woman pregnant with twins, were killed. 21 of those died instantly. 220 people were injured. The real IRA admitted responsibility for the attack and said that it was the RUC's fault that there were so many dead, as they hadn't responded to what they said was quote-unquote clear warnings. The bombing had the single largest loss of life in any attack in the history of the Troubles. It was condemned by not only the British PM, Tony Blair, Taoiseach Bertie Ahern and President McAleese, but also by Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, significant figures in Sinn Féin, the Irish Republican political party, and this was the first time that a bombing had ever been denounced by that party. This year the bombing was marked for its 20th anniversary. There has been a public remembrance in the town every year since, but this was the last of its sort. The next public memorial will take place five years from now, and every five years after. One man faced trial for 29 murders and offences relating to conspiracy and explosives in 2006, but he was found not guilty. A civil case was also brought by the families of the victims, and four men were found liable in this case, with £1.6 million in damages being awarded. 
There have been a number of reviews and investigations into the bombing to try and hold those responsible accountable criminally, but unfortunately, to date, no one has. So that was 1998 in the town of Oma. Two tragedies of different natures, but that have no doubt affected the communities there since then. It's sometimes easy to lose or overlook the more personal tragedies that occur in an area that is marked by violent terrorist attacks and so-called political violence, but it happens nonetheless, and for those involved, the horror is no less real or painful, and will stay with them too, forever. Thanks for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod, where you'll also find pictures and links to articles about what you've heard in the current episode. Or why not shoot me an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love your feedback, and I love hearing from you, so get in touch. A special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Big thanks this time around to new patrons Vicky G, Lisa, and Cara Jarvis. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the world to me. If you want to brighten my day or get some nifty podcast swag, or have access to early release, ad-free, or bonus mens rea content, head on over to Patreon today. I am exceedingly grateful for every cent. Thanks also to some of our recent five-star reviews. Thank you to KathyX96 for your five stars and your little heart. I'm so glad you're enjoying the podcast. It really does mean the world. Thank you to TCAddict36. You found us through True Crime Fan Club. God, I love Lainey. She is just the best. Thanks for heading on over and giving us a listen. Thank you to the guys over at Affirmative Murder Podcast. I'm only leaving five because I can't leave six. You guys are great. If you haven't listened to Affirmative Murder, you have got to head over there. Those guys are the best. And finally, thank you to Houston Brit. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your family. That really means the world to me. Guys, I love your feedback about the podcast, so keep it coming. It really is encouraging to hear what you think of the podcast. Um, to get some tips if there's things you think I need to improve on. So don't be shy, do get in touch, I do love hearing from you. Next time, we're back over to the UK and we'll be looking into an horrific case where we find out what happens when a mother's love turns toxic with tragic results. As always, with thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound, this podcast is researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead, All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, and in the show notes, so do check them out. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Gil, come on, get.